I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. R.H. Thompson joins me now. He has just published a new book, By the Ghost Light, Wars, Memory, and Families. It's a mesmerizing book that looks critically at how we've romanticized notions of war, including Mr. Thompson himself. He goes beyond reflecting on how he used to play with toy soldiers at his grandmother's house and into how his childhood was shaped by his family's contribution to war. Eight of Robert's great-uncles fought in the First World War, while his godmother served as uh, a military surgical nurse in Europe. The book shares a lot of the letters from his great-uncles, as well as other family members like great-aunts and cousins, which provide color and verve to the recounting of experiences at the front line. Throughout the book, we see uh, Robert's family history, as well as the impact, not just to them, their progeny, and Robert himself. He looks critically at the profound costs, as uh, well as how we as a society, not just in Canada, but elsewhere, remember. As we mark Remembrance Day tomorrow, this conversation is one way to look at the effect of war on a family and a country. R.H. Thompson's career on stage, screen, and television has spanned over 50 years. He is a member of the Order of Canada and was awarded the Governor General's Performing Arts Award for Lifetime Artistic Achievement. Visit theworldremembers.org for the international commemoration exhibit he built, which is also installed at the Canadian War Memorial. This new book is published by Alfred Akinoff Canada. We spoke this past Tuesday with Robert joining me from Toronto. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program R.H. Thompson. Mr. Thompson, good morning. Hey, Joe, how are you? Pretty good yourself. Um, this is a, a remarkable book, as I was just telling you. Um, the the letters of, of your great uncles and, and your distant cousins, um, you, you first encountered them, I guess, as a teen, is that right? I did. They were, you know, they're in, like, the family letters, like, Robert, you got to read the family letters. Huh. And I did, and I found them pretty boring, though, because they didn't talk about war, you know, with capital W's. Yeah. So... It was always there, and your conscience is pricking you, and you're going, well, I, I do really have to do read them at some point. But only when I got older did I begin to see the layers in them that I couldn't see when I was young. And that, that's the fascinating thing about uh, re- reading by the ghost light, is, is how your relationship with them uh, essentially evolves. You, you grow up with them, essentially. Um, and as you get older, they take on such a deeper meaning, don't they? They do, and whether that's like any relationship you have, I don't know. Or, or it just takes a while to get over yourself so you can listen to someone else. I don't know what it is. Or maybe because, well, you live your decades, and you watch the world at war, and you watch the politics, and you watch all of it, and you begin to see the kind of key signatures of things happening. And then you were able to go back and start reading that into those letters from 1916 and 1917 and start to, well, the context of what, say, my great-uncle George, yeah. the context of what he was going through, which I had no idea when I, was, when I was young. But now I'm going, oh, okay, so I'm starting to get the context here. And I place his letter talking about socks and, Gee, it blooms nicely here in the spring, beside the fact they're in the Battle of Passchendaele. And you begin to see where his imagination and will and wish are going in the middle of this horrendous slaughter. 
And the other thing that, that strikes me as I'm reading the book is, is um, how these people come alive. Um, um, I mean, they are letters, or one-dimensional, if you will. But in your hands, um, they, they, um, they just, you reveal so much about them. Does your, your training as an actor, does that help in that, in terms of, say, giving you insight as to who they were? I never really thought about that, about it like that. But I think you, I think you're right because, you know, as an actor, you you read the text. You have to act in the end, and you're, I guess, a good mechanic listening to a car that's not working. You have instincts that start to look for structure and things that are missing and odd phrasings and repetitions of certain things, and then you start to. Right, whether I'm doing a Tom Stafford play or a David Young play, and you start to look for the kind of narrative patterns, and in the narrative patterns, then you start to see other stories that aren't on the surface, but they are buried there. And reading the letters is a bit like that. You look for patterns. You know, what is it about, say, Jack? Jack was the great uncle who killed more than anybody else, and he was very straightforward about it, and he sent back all, all the bits of German uniforms he was taking off, the ones both dead and alive. But you listen to his syntax, and you, and you start to understand the kind of man he was while he was doing that. It just makes you appreciate him more um, as a human being. Uh, I guess that and one of the. I had a really hard time writing this book because uh-huh. I don't know. I, I don't write books, and it was a slog for years, and some tension in the family because where's Robert going? Oh, he's going upstairs to his silence, so to speak. <laughs> But what it did give me was a chance to be with my relatives in my imagination for some serious stretches of time, which is very selfish in a way. But I would go and visit them in a way every day. I would be visiting them and asking them. And, of course, are, am I taking liberties? Yeah, I am. And so I have to say in the book, they do come back at me and I say, you don't have any right to say that about me. You don't know me. So I tried to build my relationship with these men and women who were dead before I came into the world, but I think should be remembered. Yeah, and so do, do you see, Robert, how your life has been shaped, not um, not just yours even, but say your, your parents or your, your uh, other relatives that, that you've gotten to know say, since you were a kid, um, um, how this family has evolved, essentially. And, and it's, I guess the, the impact of the war is something that you illustrate so clearly in the book. But um, this closeness, I mean, do you feel like you're, you're from the same place even? I don't know. Family stories are strange places. Um, I have two cousins, two brothers, who are both cousins of mine, and we were discussing an incident in the past that was very traumatic for their family, Neither of them believes the version their brother tells. Mm-hmm. Each of them thinks, no, he doesn't have it. And so stories, family stories divorce themselves from what actually happened and then become creations along the way. You know, And we know that about memory. Every time you remember something, you, you are rebuilding the memory. You don't go back to the original zeros and ones of when did I talk to Joe in Vancouver when I remember this tomorrow and in two weeks and in two years i will go back i will be rebuilding the memory of joe who liked the book and so whether that rebuilt memory 
divorces itself from reality. Or and so this this is a theme in the book about narratives, about paying attention to stories, finding them out, but being aware where they come from and how how they may be telling the truth or affecting the truth. You know, I mean politics today. Yeah. We just watched the people in question period in, in Ottawa. You know, Pierre Polyev is not talking about reality. He's making up this fictional world of where Justin Trudeau is responsible for his fridge not working one day. <laughs> and it, and Trump is doing it in the States. Yeah. And they create these fantasy realities. And a lot of people are disappearing with, down the road with those fantasy realities. Um so stories can be very powerful but very dangerous things depending on who tells them and who listens. And, and so is, because we're all told not to tell untruths, not to lie. Um, sometimes the narratives that we tell ourselves or each other, um, you know, the, the truth can, can, can be bent a little bit. Um, what, what is the danger, though, in not talking about, say, the, the history of one's family or, or, or things in, in one's family. I mean, that, that's clear when I read your book, that, that, that there is a danger there. I mean, just, just the loss of, say, a story um, when someone dies is, is, is tragic enough. But, I mean, there are things, I mean, the, the great lesson, the, the, one of the great lessons in the book is that we need to mine our pasts. And, and, but there is a danger there, too, isn't there? Yes, if you mine the past past with uh, an objective in mind um, that's I don't know if it's dangerous but it's I don't think it's a good thing to do because mm -hmm. then you are shaping someone else's life for your own agenda on the surface but to actually mine the past to hear what the past was as clearly as you can that that always takes you into new territory, new mountain ranges, new valleys, and you learn so much. I mean, that's, that's what we're doing right now as a country, right? We thought we knew the story of Canada. We didn't become the United States. You know, the indigenous people were here, but the Europeans, right? We created this whole narrative of, you know, how we treated the indigenous peoples in Canada better than the Americans. The Americans exterminated, and we tried to accommodate them. Well, that's a narrative that we are painfully finding out was not true but someone built that narrative and now the country is beginning to say we have to refine this narrative because of the uh, what we think are the grave sites around all these residential schools for all these kids well we're thinking you know you think of the indigenous peoples you know, I do the world remembers as well so which is to name everyone and looking a bit into the history of of the first nations boys mm -hmm. Young men who joined up and fought in World War One. There were about four thousand of them, and many were killed, and many were decorated. And they came home, and they were totally disregarded. They came home when a young indigenous man decided to fight for Canada in World War One. The moment they joined the army, they were given the right to vote. So they left. They were shot at, or they shot. They did their service. They came home. They left the army, and they lost their ability to vote. So what do you say to that young man? Or the mother of the young man who comes back to his, you know, comes back to Brantford, Six Nations Reserve, and they, they can no longer vote. It's, the stories down there are deep and they're painful. But I think we become a broader, more resilient, and more honest nation if we start to include 
all of those stories as we rebuild the Canadian national story and find this new way of talking about who we are in the north end of the continent. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing that I was thinking about as I was finishing the book um, is how memory works. And there's a lot um, that we unfortunately unlearn as as we go on and 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 you know the, the we repeat patterns obviously i mean you you think of the the, the first war and then the, the second war and the, right after um if we didn't forget a lot of these important lessons i i, I would think that that there wouldn't be wars i totally agree if you tell the full story after a war a very few people will be re- willing to fight the next one but if you don't tell the full story after the war, if, you know, in my case, I see them dressing it up with very high language and monuments and uh, I don't want to say it's glorification, but it's a romancing, uh, a romancing right. of the soldier warrior that is on most of our war memorials across the country. I don't think that's the true picture of the war at all. And the fact is that story of war wasn't created by the veterans who fought. That was created by the civilians at home. So the civilians who never went to war started to create the memory of the war. And that's uh, that's out of step for me yeah. because, well, they romanticized it. They tried to clean up the fact that it was really long, really messy. It wasn't actually for democracy and freedom at all. World War One was nothing to do about fighting for democracy and freedom, though they sold it under that. And in a way, having nine and a half million soldiers killed over four and a half years, and the armies of Europe basically ended up at the end of the war where they started, and six million civilians were killed, of course you want to clean that one up. Well, I don't think we should. Yeah. Um, I think we owe it to humanity to actually tell the story. And if you actually, if you look at the Vietnam War, the Vietnam War, you see the American military trying to control it, trying to, but they let the journalists over there. And then you see the real footage come back from Vietnam, and it's really disturbing to a lot of people in the United States. Mm-hmm. And the whole mm, romantic or it's necessary for democracy narrative about Vietnam started to fall apart and became a battle within the United States. There's the students at Kent State, you know, there's the the reactionary forces. And then in Hollywood afterwards, the films the Americans made about the war in Vietnam, there were a few glory films, but some really hard-edged filmmakers saying, okay, I'm going to tell you a story called Coming Home. Uh, The one with John Voight and and Jane Fonda. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you the deer hunter. I'm going to tell you these stories. And they're not comfortable because we don't come off well in them. But we better tell the story. And I would say... Great. And then Sylvester Stallone came along, and he was back in North Vietnam, you know, muscled up and with his bandanas on. He was saving American POWs, and you go, oh, my God, we're back to the same the same kind of guts and glory kind of films. But there was a part, was a section there of a number of years where Hollywood did pull out what I call fully dimensional stories about mm-hmm. what it was like to be in Vietnam. But all those all those stories, even those grittier filmmakers were doing, did not really include the North Vietnamese or the South Vietnamese. Right. They were still Ameri- uh, stories based on American experience. Yeah. 
when are we going to tell a story about a war that's about everybody in yeah. that war? That's that's my challenge. Yeah. And and you, you take on the challenge of, of um, contending with with the morality of why why wars happen. In in your book, you you also are, are, are um, I hate to use the word political, but you you do have ideas of of how um, our society and our culture uh, is shaped. Um, in terms of unpacking the moral mess in in the wake of a war, as you do, um, you know, you, you tackle racism as well, um, the imperfect behavior of some of your your um, your ancestors. Um, was that tough to do, especially in a family context where there are other people involved? It was very touchy to do, and I still don't know how it's going to roll out um, because a lot of family haven't read the book yet, and a lot of family have no idea of that bit of toxicity at the bottom of this branch of the family of of, the, of, of that history. They don't know of it yet. Um, I came across it by accident. You know, someone sent sent to me an article and said you should read this. And then I, I got the historian. He thinks it's from the University of Seattle, Seattle or Washington. He had written a fairly extensive book on it. Um, and I did think of the German experience. What happens when the war that your side is part of, that your side does some pretty bleak things? Yeah. Where do you put that part of the story? Because as Canadians, we've been used to being on the winning side, and we're the good people. And we fight for freedom, and we don't do those dastardly things that those enemy people did. But we did do them. We just don't think of the one, you know, the 400 years we spent arriving with the indigenous peoples in their land. We didn't think of it as a war. We thought of a settlement, but in fact it was a slow-motion war. And, yeah, we did some okay things, but we did some pretty dastardly things as well. So we got to tell those stories. If we're to grow up as a country, mm. if we're going to live, continue to sort of sit in late adolescence of a country where you have a restricted view of yourself, I would say the nation then is stuck in late adolescence. But the challenge is we have to go beyond that. Now we have to become a fully mature people living at the north end of North America. Mm. That means all these stories have, been, have to be brought into the circle, so to speak. And I don't know where that takes us. But I'm optimistic about that because I think we make a stronger Canada, we make a more resilient Canada, and we actually, it's what I found going to a lot of the, working on the world remembers mm -hmm. and trying to, you know, going to Belgrade and Bratislava and Rome and Brussels, whatever. A number, more than one, I should be careful here, more than one diplomat said to me, Robert, you know, this is to find the name of every soldier killed in World War One, all armies. More than one diplomat said, Robert, only the Canadians can do this project. I said, what do you mean? They said, well, the Germans couldn't do it. Yeah. No. Yeah. The British wouldn't. They probably wouldn't do it. The French can't do it. The Americans can't do it. But you as Canada, you're a middle nation, but you're also made up of every peoples in the globe. And therefore, when you approach us in Belgrade or Bratislava and say, we want to do an inclusive project that names every soldier from every country who was killed in World War One. There is more; they are more likely to say, "Okay, it's a Canadian idea. Fine, I'll do it." And that's an indication of what we can be as a nation if we keep going forward with bravery and resilience and building all these stories 
of dark and light into our national psyche. Uh, this may be too soon to ask you, Robert, but because the book is just out, um, do, do you consider what you've done in terms of writing it, not just the world remembers, but in terms of writing by the ghost light as a service in a way? I don't know. Um, it's an act of madness, that's true. <laughs> uh, I never thought the world, I mean, I didn't, when I started the world remembers, I didn't give it, I gave it like a 30% chance of actually working. Uh-huh. And we did have some real, really serious setbacks. And so, you know, the board who was helping me with it said, you know, okay, so we start with seven countries. We know we're missing 24 countries. Let's start with seven and see how we go. Yes, this government has pulled its funding. Okay, let's keep going. Because there were enough interested individuals. Institutions had a hard time saying, we like this idea of an inclusive remembrance that includes the German, the American, the South African, the British, the French, the New Zealander. We like that idea. But institutions would rarely support it. Individuals did. An individual would say, Robert, you should keep going on this. And I said, well, I need some help. And they would write me a check. But individuals would say, this is important, keep going. And that became the energy of the project, rather than, you know, Veterans Affairs saying, we like your project, we're mm-hmm. going to fund you over seven years. Never happened. Um, there were even some very dark moments when people tried to block us. Yeah. But there you go. Um, it, it, does your conception of what uh, heroic is, um, does that change at all in the process of writing this book? You said what heroic is? Yeah. Like many words in our language, it has become loaded, mm. and it's loaded with assumptions. And some words can get so overloaded, I am reluctant to use them anymore because they become so layered with other people's agendas. So I don't I don't use the word hero anymore. Um, and there's a lot of use of the word hero. And I have had uh, World War II combat vets saying to me, we don't understand why, uh, why, you know, everyone who comes back from Afghanistan is a hero. We don't understand that. Yes, they did an amazingly bravery thing, and yes, they put their, their lives on the line, but does that mean they're a hero? And the Second World War vet I'm thinking of would say, well, what does that make us? Mm. Who actually took far greater risk, far more took far greater risk, and far more lives were taken. And so I try to stay heroism. Okay, hero is too loaded for me. So I just want to acknowledge enormously brave and dedicated individuals who put their lives on the line. Um, you are described, Robert, as one of um, the nation's most beloved performers. When you hear that, do you believe that at all? It's Canada, <laughs> Joe. <laughs> Any actor is lucky to be making their living. You know, you cobble along, you try to keep a career going, and a lot of dry periods, and you're in favor for a couple of years, and then you're out of favor. And I'll go work at the Tarragon Theater, and after whatever, 45 years of working, uh, I will still be paid $910 a week. Um, but you do it because you you do it because of the stories. I mean, that's why I do it now. I do mm-hmm. it because of the story. 
And if they're great stories, I'll do them for almost nothing. You know, I'll eat my sandwiches in the lobby. Um, and rarely do you get a, a job that actually pays on television or film. That's a good story and pays. Um, it's a very strange entertainment world out there at the moment. Yeah. I, I, I guess you, you do have to work harder at the, the longer you're at it, don't you? Well, I have to self-tape. You know, after self-tape, now you don't go in for audition. Mm. You know, you get a call saying, we're going to send you uh, three scenes, learn them, hold up your iPhone, and tape yourself and send it in. You get that. I've come to the conclusion that it's as difficult to get a job at the end of your career, which is where I am now, as it is to get a job at the beginning of your career. They're both kind of an equal struggle. And somehow the decades you spent working doesn't seem to swing it in your favor at the end. Don't ask me why. Yeah. I can't tell you how many friends who are really wonderful actors who haven't worked in years. I go, why? Why leave them at the side of the road? Yeah. Well, we could talk about television. We could talk about network television. We could talk about Marvel Comics, but we're not going to do that. Yeah. That's another day. Yeah, I'll, I'll let you go, Robert. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. This is a remarkable book. I, I cannot tell you how much I have thought about it since um, reading it and um, how much I'll think about it um, I really as, appreciate as it. the years go on. Thank you for your time today. And if you could mention the website, theworldremembers.ca, because it's the only way we keep going. People come on, they say, how can I help? You know, if you send us a bit of money, I can work on the Romanian names and the Polish names and other people. I just need to know that people want this to happen. And it's and again, the website is where you can search that database of four million names and look for your family's name. So it's theworldremembers.org or theworldremembers.ca. Do visit theworldremembers.org for this uh, international uh, commemoration exhibit uh, that he built. It's it's quite moving uh, to see. And uh, do pick up the book by the Ghost Light Wars, Memory, and Families. It's published by uh, Knopf. It's author R.H. Thompson. Join me on the line from Toronto and Vancouver. I'm Joseph Planta.